Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. We are in Genesis um, chapter 49. So if you have your Bibles and you want to turn to Genesis chapter 49, if you don't have a Bible and you want to follow along, we do have some in the back there. We'd be glad to loan you one, or if you don't have one, you can even take it if you want to keep it. Genesis chapter 49, and uh, I want to give you a little bit of an introduction because we started, we ended in partway through actually, verse 12 of chapter 49, um, and here's the scene basically, Jacob, he's at the end of his life, he knows that his days are short, and so he calls all his sons to gather around his bed, and he prophesies over each one, one by one. And if you look at the, the history of each tribe, those prophecies were fulfilled in the tribe's histories. But there also seems to be a, you know, sometimes, a lot of times in prophecy, there's a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. And I think that's the same case with the, with the sons of, of Jacob. There's a, there was a near fulfillment in what we saw in the history of the tribes. But there also seems to be a far fulfillment. Um, each prophecy also seems to describe a significant period in the history of the nation of Israel. Some of them have already been fulfilled. We talked about some of them last week, and some of them are yet to be fulfilled. So last week we looked at Reuben, the tribe of Reuben, what that represented, the tribe of Simeon and Levi and, and Judah. And that's where we ended uh, before we, uh, well, that's where we ended, verse 12. And so now we're at verse 13, and we're going to be picking it up there. But before I jump into that, I just want to share, like with Reuben, for give you an example. Um, it represents, or the prophecy over Reuben represents the beginning of the nation's history. And if you recall, uh, just like Reuben, he was the firstborn, all that potential of, of the, the first child who would receive the double blessing, and he failed. He, he, he committed, spirit, or committed fornication with Bilhah, Jacob's uh, concubine. And just like Reuben did that, the nation of Israel, when they were birthed, they were birthed on Mount Sinai when they received the covenant from the Lord. And that very time, and all that potential, this, this new nation that God was going to be leading, and they also committed spiritual fornication when they asked for Aaron to create this golden calf that they could worship. And so we saw that um, with the tribe of Reuben. And then, and then he goes on to prophesy over Simeon and Levi. And the, the bottom line of the prophecy is that both of those tribes would be scattered and dispersed. And we saw that historically with the tribe of Simeon being absorbed into the tribe of Judah and also the tribe of Levi, they were, they were scattered. They never had a tribal territory. They were given cities. They were the priestly tribe. And so they were scattered throughout the nation of Israel. And looking at a far fulfillment, um, both the tribe of Simeon and Levi represents the scattering and the dispersion of the nation of Israel in the Assyrian captivity and the Babylonian captivity. And then we got to Judah. And Judah, of course, represents, of course, we talked about it. By the way, if you're interested and you're like, man, I don't know what he's talking about, um, we save our teachings that are on the website, or I think there's even a, 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 a YouTube, or not YouTube, uh, iTunes podcast you can subscribe to. But anyways, uh, if you're interested in it, you can listen to last week's teaching. But Judah represents the first coming of the Messiah to the nation of Israel. So that kind of gives you kind of an idea of where we're at. Uh, this morning, we're going to pick up where we left off at verse 13 in chapter 49. And we're going to look at the remaining prophecies over the sons of Israel. 
And Lord willing, we're going to make it actually to the end of the book of Genesis. And the, the, the book of Genesis, it closes really with the end of both Jacob's life and then in chapter 50, the end of Joseph's life. And they both had different beginnings. And despite their beginnings, both of those men finished well. They finished well. And so we're going to look at how they finished well this morning. But first we're going to go through these prophecies. So the very next son that Jacob prophesies over is Zebulun. And that's in verse 13 of chapter 49. Zebulun shall dwell by the haven of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his borders shall adjoin Sidon. Now we look at the tribe's history. And as far as we know, the, tribe of, uh, the tribal land of Zebulun did not actually reach the Mediterranean Sea. But it did touch on Carmel, which is on the sea. And it did touch the border of Phoenicia, which is where Sidon was located. But there was also an international trade route that went right through that tribal territory of Zebulun. It's called the Via Maris. I don't know if it's, I'm pronouncing it right, but it means the way of the sea. And it, was, it linked Egypt with, that was below or south of, of Israel to the northern empires of Syria, Anatolia, and Mesopotamia. And it was a major trade route. And so this prophecy, it could, it could have meant that the tribe would have benefited from the maritime trade that would be passing through there. That's the tribal history. But what period in the nation of Israel's history does this prophecy speak of also? It says there, he shall become a haven for ships. What it literally means is, and he to at or on a shore of ships shall dwell. I'm looking at, the, at, a, at a, a literal translation. In other words, the prophecy seems to say he would dwell on a shore where ships are unloaded. And uh, if we look at... Uh, Actually, Moses, Moses at the end of his life also prophesies over the children of Israel. And in Deuteronomy 33, 18, he says this of Zebulun. He says, and of Zebulun, he said, rejoice, Zebulun, in your going out and Issachar in your tents. So it's kind of interesting. If, in fact, Israel's prophecies over his sons point to an entire, uh, point to a, a chronological period in Israel's history, um, the last son we talked about was Judah. Well, we know that when Jesus came to the nation of Israel, he was rejected by the nation. And about 40 years later, in A.D. 70, Jerusalem was destroyed by the Roman armies. Zebulun seems to represent the worldwide dispersion of the Jews after the Roman destruction of Jerusalem. They were literally shipped out of Israel to that extent. And when I talk literally shipped out, they are worldwide. It's interesting. I was going to create a bunch of pictures, but I thought, no, that's going to, that's going to be a lot of pictures. But I, I typed in Chinese Jews. You know what? Go, go do that. Type in Chinese, Chinese Jews and look at images, and you'll see people, Chinese nationality, wearing the yarmulkes and everything. And there's, there's Jews in China. There's Jews in South America. There's Jews in, you know, you name it, any country in the world, there's Jewish people there. And so they literally were scattered all over the world. They literally were shipped out. So let's look at the next son, Issachar. That's in verse 14 to 15. Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between two burdens. He saw that rest was good and the land was pleasant. He bowed his shoulder, uh, bowed his shoulder to bear a burden and became a band of slaves. Now I don't know if you're reading the 
King James Version, but it seems to be more of an insult in the King James. It's, it's like, Issachar, you're a, well, I won't go there, but anyways, um, another word for donkey. Anyways, so what's the, the history of the tribe of Issachar? It says, Issachar was like a strong donkey. And in fact, the tribe did grew, uh, grow very large. Uh, but their district, that, they, that their territory was actually, actually relatively small. And that tribal land did embrace some of the most fruitful land in Palestine, good farmland. But it says there Israel became, a, or Issachar, excuse me, became a band of slaves. With its rich crops, that territory would be the target of invading armies who would take, you know, they, they would plunder that area frequently. And so that could seem to, that seems to be what that uh, tribal history, the fulfillment of, of Jacob's prophecy is. But what about what period in the nation's uh, nation of Israel's history does this prophecy speak of? You know, what we looked at was Zebulun. They were shipped out. They were they were scattered throughout the world. And for over two thousand years, uh, Jewish people have been dwelling in communities worldwide. And I, I kind of refer back to that prophecy in Deuteronomy thirty three eighteen. It says, "And of Zebulun, he said, rejoice, Zebulun, and go and you're going out." And then he says, "And in Issachar, in your tents." You know, where you're dwelling, basically. And everywhere the Jewish people settled, um, the Lord actually blessed them. They were fruitful. They, they, abundant, they, they, they were just blessed abundantly. Um, and as a result of that abundance, a lot of times the people that were around them in those communities grew envious of them. And, and, and they were targeted by, by oppression, you know, they were, they were oppressed so many times. You look at the pogroms in, in Russia, of course, the Holocaust in, in uh, Nazi Germany. But not only that, but, you know, all through their history, 2,000 years, they've been the target of, a, of oppression and exploitation. And if I were to look at the, the nations of the nation of Israel in light of these prophecies, I'd say right now, that prophecy on Issachar, I think that's where the nation of Israel is right now. And you might say, well, wait a minute. They're back in the land now. They're back in the land of Israel, which is true, they are. But they're still being exploited. They're being exploited by the nations all around them. Uh, So many nations, you know, you look at the United Nations, they're always condemning Israel for everything that they do. So I think right now, the tribe, the the, the Issachar's prophecy is is basically uh, applies to Israel right now. But I do believe, and this is a pretty firm belief of mine, that we're nearing that end of the time of Issachar, and we're, they're going to soon be entering into the time of Dan, which is the next one we're going to look at. Verses 16 through 18. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path, that bites the horse's heels so that its rider shall fall backward. I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. The tribe's history... We look at it, and the tribe of Dan was the first tribe to officially introduce idol worship on a regular basis. If you're taking notes, I don't know if you are, but in Judges 18, verses 30 to 31, it talks about that. At that time in the time of Judges is when everyone did right in the eyes in their own eyes. You know, it's kind of like the, where we're living at right now. You know, everybody's got their own reality, their own truth and everything. And that's where it was in the time of Judges. And uh, Dan was the first tribe to introduce idolatry officially. It's interesting because the tribe of Dan, if you go to Revelation uh, chapter 7, verses 5 through 8, um, it's, we're not going to read it this morning. You can write it down if you want. But it's a prophecy dealing with the 144,000 
uh, Jewish people that are going to be sealed, 12,000 from each tribe. We'll be talking about that a little bit later. But what's fascinating about that is the tribe of Dan isn't even mentioned in that uh, listing of the tribes of Israel. And as a result of that, there are many people that think that the Antichrist is either going to have some kind of affiliation with the tribe of Dan or he might even descend possibly from the tribe of Dan. So what period in the nation of Israel's history does this prophecy speak of? And I really think after the rapture of the church, when the Antichrist is to be revealed to the world, it says, Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider shall fall backward. And the nation of Israel, as we see in scriptures, they're going to welcome the Antichrist as their Messiah. They're going to ride upon him, so to speak, for three and a half years until he stands in the temple and declares himself to be God. And at that point, the is- Israel, the nation, they're going to be, it's like they've been bitten by a snake. Of course, the snake being the Antichrist. And they're going to fall off their horse. It's, they're, they're going to realize we've been believing a lie. It's interesting, in the very middle of this prophecy, verse 18, it's like Jacob is either he's stopping to, to worship, and some think people say, well, maybe it's because he's, he just realizes his death is near. But he says, I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. And if you're looking at this time prophetically, the, the, the tribe of Dan, that's, that's during the tribulation, the great tribulation. The Bible says it's the time of Jacob's trouble. A time that, a period that, that never has been so intense and never will be as intense as that time. And during that time, the nation of Israel, they're, they're probably going to be crying out, especially when they realize that Antichrist is not their Messiah. They're going to be crying out. And so I think as Jacob's prophesying by the Spirit, he cries out as, I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. We get to the next son, Gad, verse 19. Gad, a troop shall tramp upon him, but he shall triumph at last. And if you look historically at the tribe's history, they were on the east side of the Jordan River, and because of their location, they were frequently attacked by foreign armies. But the tribe of Gad was known to have valiant uh, fighters, and they usually prevailed in their battles. Well, what period in the nation of Israel's history does this prophecy speak of? Well, once the Jewish people realize that they've been deceived by the Antichrist, the Antichrist, the Bible talks about it in Revelation, he's going to declare war on Israel. And he's going to gather all the nations of the world to surround and attack Israel. And they're going to all uh, gather in what's known as the Valley of Megiddo or the Jezreel Valley. Uh, We call it the Battle of Armageddon. And all these, they're all going to come against Israel, but they're going to be destroyed by the Lord and by the Lord's people, you and I, who are the church, we're going to return with Christ. And Israel will triumph at last. And it seems to point to that time period. We get to the next son, Asher. Verse 20. Bread from Asher shall be rich, and he shall yield royal dainties. We look at the tribe's history. I don't know if you know this, but Asher is Hebrew for the word Duncan. And... Uh, what did they do in their history? Well, they opened a bunch of donut shops in their territory. It was a favorite stopping place for local law enforcement. But uh, no, I'm, I'm just kidding. That's not, that's not reality. Um, it says, bread from Asher shall be rich, and he shall yield royal dainties. That, to me, that's donuts, but maybe not. Um, well, in reality, in reality, listen, Asher's land was the most productive in Israel. 
But rather than drive out the Canaanite inhabitants, they were content to dwell among them. We're told in Judges 1, verses 31 to 32. Well, what period in the nation of Israel's history does this prophecy speak of? Again, during the second half of that great tribulation, Israel's going to flee uh, and go into the wilderness. And the Bible tells us in Revelation that God's going to protect his people and will feed them himself with his royal dainties. If you want, if you keep your Bible there, keep your finger in Genesis and turn to Revelation 12.6. That's where it describes this. Revelation 12.6 says, Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared uh, by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. And many people believe that the, the, the surviving Jews that this prophecy is speaking about are going to dwell safely in the rock city of Petra in Jordan. I want to just, if, if, you're, if you're taking notes, here's a couple verses. I'll just read them to you. You don't have to look them up this morning. You can maybe go back and look at them. But Isaiah 26, verse 20 says, Come, my people, enter into thy chambers and shut thy doors behind thee. Hide thyself shortly a moment till the indignation pass over. Isaiah 16, verse 1. Send the lamb to the rulers of the land from Selah to the wilderness to the mount of the daughter of Zion. Selah is another word for Petra. Isaiah 16, verse 4. Let my outcasts dwell with you, O Moab. Be a shelter to them from the face of the spoiler. For the extortioner is at an end. Devastation ceases. The oppressors are consumed out of the land. So this seems to point to this time when, when Israel is, is protected by, by the Lord God himself during that second half of the Great Tribulation. And then we get to the next son, Naphtali. Verse 21 of chapter 49. Naphtali is a deer let loose. He uses beautiful words. Well, what about the tribe's history? Well, they settled in the upper Galilee region, which is very wide open, and there's lots of, of mountains, and, and uh, you know, right along the, the Sea of Galilee, there's some really awesome hills and stuff. And the people themselves, just like the land, they were very hardy people. They were very free-spirited, kind of like a deer just roaming around. And uh, they were very, uh, because they were so hardy and free-spirited, they had a history Throughout their history of joining in the battles, whatever battles Israel fought, um, Naphtali was there. They, they, they were there. They were part of the battles, uh, faithful in that way. Well, what period in the nation of Israel's history does this prophecy possibly speak of? During the second half of the Great Tribulation, I mentioned in Revelation chapter 7, there's going to be 144,000 Jewish men, 12,000 from each tribe they are going to be sealed. Revelation 7 describes them as being the first fruits of a great harvest of believers during the tribulation. And many people believe, myself included, that these 144,000, they're going to be like Jewish Billy Grahams. That during that time, they're going to go around the world evangelizing using beautiful words. And there's going to be such a great harvest during that time. There's some Revelation references here, uh, if you're taking notes. Revelation 7, uh, verse 4, it talks about those 144,000. It says, And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000, uh, 44,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Revelation 14, verse 4, it, it talks about these men as being firstfruits. 
It says, these are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. They are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And so it's, it seems to point to these, these, these and boy, when we get to Revelation, we're going to really dig into this. But it seems that these, these, these men, they're going to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. And they're going to become the most zealous evangelists during the tribulation for Jesus. In Revelation 7, uh, verse 9, going back to that chapter, it talks about the great multitude of people who are going to come to faith uh, during the great tribulation as a result of their ministry. It says, After these things, verse 9, I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. So it seems to be pointing to that period. And finally, we get to Joseph, verses 22 to 26. Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a well. His branches run over the wall. The archers have, gre- have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him. But his bow remained in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father, who will help you, and by the Almighty, who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors. Up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills, they shall be on the head of Joseph, and on the crown of the head of him who was separate from his brothers. There's a lot lot of verses dedicated to the prophecy over Joseph. And if we look at the tribe of Joseph, their history. In fact, a lot of times you won't even see the tribe of Joseph mentioned. Why? Because they were so fruitful and they multiplied so much that the blessing was split between Manasseh and Ephraim. Ephraim became the greater, we talked about that last week as well, the greater of the two sons prophetically as far as the blessing is received. And they actually, you know, when the ten northern tribes separated from the two southern tribes, that whole group of ten tribes was collectively referred to as Ephraim. And so we see this being fulfilled in, in, the, in the history of the tribe of Joseph. But what period in the nation of tribes of Israel's history does this prophecy possibly speak of? Again, as we've been going through these last few chapters in Genesis, we've pointed out over and over again how Joseph himself is a picture of Jesus Christ or a type of Christ. And chronologically, after the tribes that are previously mentioned, you know, they represent different phases during the Great Tribulation. Joseph then represents Jesus' second coming to the nation of Israel when he comes to return to reign and rule for a thousand years during the millennium. Because you look, you know, like Joseph, Joseph was hated and mistreated by his brothers, and we saw that in history that happened. But Jesus was hated and mistreated by his brothers, the Jews. Joseph was finally exalted. Of course, the Bible says Jesus has been exalted far above all principality and power and might and dominion. And every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that age which is to come. Jesus has been exalted. And like Joseph, who was crowned a ruler over Egypt, we see Jesus, who is crowned with all glory and honor. We get to the last son, Benjamin, verse 27. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall divide the spoil. 
Benjamin's history, tribal history, is kind of interesting. The tribe was very brave. They were very warlike. In Judges 20, verse 16, one of the scriptures says, Among all this people were 700 select men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair's breadth and not miss. They were warriors. They were skilled. Some of the mighty men of David were of the tribe of Benjamin. In 1 Chronicles 12, 2, it says they were armed with bows using both the right hand and the left in hurling stones and shooting arrows with the bows. They were like Rambo, you know. Um, they were of Benjamin, Saul's brethren. So it's so a very warlike, brave, warlike tribe. But there was something that happened in the history of the tribe of Benjamin. It's recorded in the book of Judges. They did a very wicked a very wicked deed during the time of the, of the judges. And as a result of that, all the, na- all the other tribes came against Benjamin, and the tribe of Benjamin was decimated, and they were almost completely, they almost completely disappeared as a tribe. And as a result, they were the smallest of the tribes of Israel. So looking prophetically into the future, what could the tribe of, nation, of Benjamin possibly represent? And I believe they represent the remnant of believing Jews who are going to enter the millennium. In Zechariah 13, verse 9, this is a prophecy of that. It says, I will bring the one-third through the fire, will refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. And they will call on my name, and I will answer them, and I will say, this is my people. And each one will say, the Lord is my God. So we see this remnant uh, at the end of that great tribulation who will be saved. Verse 28 of chapter 49, All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. And this is what their father spoke to them, and he blessed them, and he blessed each one according to his own blessing. And you know, maybe some people you really like, I know usually you fall into two groups of people, you really, really like prophecy, and some people are like, oh, okay. How does that apply to me? It's like, that's fascinating information, but how does that apply to me? Here's how it applies to each one of us. When you look at the the history of the nation of Israel, for 2,000 years, they were scattered across the globe, right? For 2,000 years. No other nation on earth has been scattered like the nation of Israel, so widespread and for so long, only to be miraculously brought back into the land. No, No other nation has ever in the history of the world, has ever been like Israel, miraculously reborn there in 1948. They were brought back into the land with their, with their religion intact, Judaism. They were brought back into the land with their culture, their language. They even have shekels, their coinage. It's a miracle. And so, you know, it's fascinating because prior to 1948, if you look at, if you go into the Bible and start, or the commentaries, start looking at the Bible commentaries, a lot, of, a lot of the commentators, before Israel became a nation, they're, they're reading all these prophecies about God's blessings on Israel, and they go, there is no nation of Israel. It must apply to the church. And so they developed what's known as replacement theology. Sadly to say, even though Israel is now a nation, there's still different churches that believe that all the promises of God related to Israel, they've been transferred to the church. And as a result of that, There are denominations, Protestant denominations, that consider the nation-state of Israel as not legitimate. And they even, you know, they consider them occupiers, and they divest from Israel, and they do all this um, because of this replacement theology. 
But for you and me, here's where it applies, I think. If God has not given up on his people, the Jews, he's not going to give up on you and, he, you and me either. If he's brought them back from the brink of national extinction, it doesn't matter how far you've walked away from the Lord. It doesn't matter what you've done. If you repent, he can restore you just like he restored the nation of Israel. And if he's faithful to his promises to them, he's going to be faithful to his promises to you and I as well. That's where the application is. That's the comfort that we get from reading that. Well, let's continue on here. Verse 29. Then he charged them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite as a possession for a burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife, And there they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is there were purchased from the sons of Heth. And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Israel, speaking of Israel, the man, finished well. Israel's faith in God's promise was so strong, that God's promise to bring them back to Canaan, that he insisted when he died, he says, take my body back to, to Canaan, because you guys are going to be coming back to Canaan. And he mentions this cave in the field of Machpelah. Hebrews 11.21, that what we call the Hebrews Hall of Faith, It says, by faith, verse 21, by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. Here, the end of his life, he's prophesying, Israel finished well in faith. He finished well in faith. Here's another point here. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I mean, they were very wealthy in their day and their age. But the Bible says they consider themselves sojourners. You know, the only property, let's say you won the lottery. I don't know if any of you play the lottery, but let's say you won the lottery. What would you do with it? I'd buy this great big house on the lake somewhere. You know, I'd do this or I'd do that. You know, Abraham was so wealthy. Isaac was so wealthy. Jacob was so wealthy. But you know what? They lived in tents their entire time. They lived in tents. The only property that Abraham ever purchased and that Jacob inherited um, was this cave to be buried in. It's the only property. It's just a place to bury my bones. You see, because Israel also finished well with his treasure. His possessions didn't possess him. He just possessed possessions. There's an important difference. Matthew 6, 19 through 21, Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And if you look at those three men, their treasure, their heart was in the promised land. They were sojourners. One more point in this passage that I think is is worthy of note and it might be kind of interesting to you. Remember, Jacob had two wives and two concubines, right? His first wife, the, one that, the woman that he fell in love with that he wanted to marry was Rachel. She was the younger of the two sisters. Jacob loved Rachel. He was his, she was his beloved wife. 
But Rachel, as we look at her character, you know, she's the one that took, stole her dad's idol. And, and uh, at one point, uh, as Leah was having wives and, or having children, um, she said, to, Rachel said to Jacob, give me children or else I'll die. And uh, Jacob basically, my God, to do this? You know, I, you know, he was angry with her as a result of that. Well, the Lord did give her children. And uh, Jacob, or Joseph was one of them, and then Benjamin, and she died giving birth to Benjamin. But Leah was the wife that Jacob was tricked into marrying. Leah was the wife that, was, that he was tricked into marrying. So he, he didn't love her the same way he loved Rachel. And Leah picked up on that. In Genesis 29, verse 32, Leah's having a son, and she wants, she desires her husband's love so much. It says, so Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, the Lord has surely looked on my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. Such a strong desire to have that love that she didn't have. And here at the end of his life, Jacob doesn't ask to be buried next to Rachel. He says, bury me next to Leah the unloved wife. What happened? What happened? This is what happened. He persevered in his marriage. You remember at the Ford Jabbok when, when Jacob, he was you know, the supplanter, he was the manipulator and everything, and God, he wrestled with an angel there, and God finally broke Jacob, and he surrendered to the Lord, and the Lord changed his name to Israel, ruled by God. At that point, um, Jacob surrendered his life to the Lord. And I think... Um, I submit to you that God changed his heart in every way, including his love for Leah. He finally submitted. You know, um, Israel finished well in his marriage. And, and, you know, sometimes you might say, you know, I've talked to people. Of course, you know, I love performing wedding ceremonies. Funerals, you know, it's a great opportunity to evangelize. And it's great when there's a saint that passes away. What a great testimony. Um, But one of the things that's kind of a bummer that I don't like doing is marriage counseling. Um, premarital counseling, that's fun too. Um, but marriage counseling, you know, sometimes you get people like, you know, we made a mistake. We should have never got married. And, and, and they have all these reasons why they should separate. And, I, you know, look at Jacob. Jacob was, he persevered in a marriage that really shouldn't have been. I mean, he, he literally could say, I was tricked into marrying. I, I didn't want to marry her, but I got stuck with her. And yet he persevered. And now, at the end of his life, he has to be buried with her. God changed his heart. I think that's fascinating. Israel finished well in his marriage. Let's go on to chapter 50, verse 1 and 2. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. I was fascinated in what embalming take, what takes place during embalming. Herodotus, a historian, says this, that they used to draw out the brain through the nostrils. So I imagine they probably stuck like a silly straw or something. <laughs> so no, kidding. They drew out the brain through the nostrils. Um, you take out the whole contents of the belly. Sorry. We have jelly-filled donuts in the back here, too. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> they take out the whole contents of the belly and clean the interior with palm wine and spices. They fill the belly with pure myrrh, cassia, and other spices and sew it together again. They cover it up in natron, wherever that is, for 70 days. Then they wash the corpse and roll it up in fine linen. Listen, Jacob was both a daddy and a mummy to his sons. Isn't that fascinating? (laughs) Uh, 
Okay, anyways, let's move on. <laughs> Verse 3. Forty days were required for him, for such are the days required for those who are embalmed. And the Egyptians mourned for him seventy days. You know, in Egypt, when a king or a pharaoh would pass away, someone royal would pass away, they would take 72 days to mourn him. So they mourned for Jacob for 70 days. So he was very highly honored. And it wasn't because of him. It was because of his connection to Joseph, who's a picture of Christ, right? We're honored with our connection to Christ. What's fascinating in that verse there, um, in verse, uh, where am I at here? The end of verse 14, it says that Joseph returned to Egypt. I didn't read those verses, did I? Verses 4 to 14. Oh, yeah, I did. Did I? I didn't. Let me read them to you. Verse 4. It says, Now when the days of his mourning were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the hearing of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am dying, and my grave which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, and I will come back. And Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as the house of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's house. Only their little ones, their flocks, and their herds they left in the land of Goshen. And there they went up with him in both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great gathering. Then they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan. And there they mourned there with a great and solemn, very solemn lamentation. He observed seven days of mourning for his father. And when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a deep mourning of the Egyptians. Therefore, its name was called Abel Mizraim, which is beyond the Jordan. So his sons did for him just as he commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite as a property for a burial place. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers and all who went up with him to bury his father. Isn't that interesting? He returned to Egypt. He didn't have to return to Egypt, right? I mean, the, 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 the drought had passed, the famine had passed, that, that trial, that they were through the trial, and yet he still returned to Egypt. Why? Because he trusted in the Lord's timing regarding their spine. Remember the Lord said, prophesied to Abraham, and I'm sure it was passed down to Joseph, you're going to be in the land for 400 years. And you think about it when... when when Egypt, or excuse me, when when uh, uh, Joseph became the prime minister of Egypt, he didn't send a message to his uh, back to his father Jacob. Right? He was he waited until the sons came, and even then he didn't tell them at first that he was their brother. You wonder why? Why didn't he just send a delegation and go, "Hey, Dad, I'm now the prime minister of of, of Egypt, and I'm, I'm here, I'm alive." And he didn't do that. Why? Because he was submitted to God's timing, to God's will. And I see that here. Joseph returned to Egypt. He himself died in Egypt, but he was submitted to God's timing and not his timing. And that's what we see here. Joseph finished well being submitted to God's will. Let me ask you this this morning. Does God have you in a place or in a situation right now where you'd rather not be? 
It's like, I, I don't understand why I'm here. Uh, you know, I I hate it. I want to get out of this situation. I want to get out of this place or whatever. Um, Instead of striving and expending all your energy and all your focus on how bad it is and how you want to get out of here, can I just challenge you to submit to God's will wherever he's got you and into his timing because his timing is always the perfect timing. That's a tough thing. I'm not not just saying that to you guys like, you guys are bad. No, I struggle the same way. I struggle with that. Lord, I want to get out from under my trial. I want to get out from under whatever is going on. But if I can just learn to submit to God's will and just allow him to work through that, that's where the blessing comes. Verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which he did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph saying, before your father died, he commanded saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please, forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now, please, forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. See, even after all these years, they still distrusted Joseph's forgiveness. They still thought that he was holding something against him. And when Joseph realized that, it just broke his heart. Verse 18, then his servants, excuse me, then his brothers also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we are your servants. Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for me, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring it about as it is this day, to save many people alive. Now therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph had that right attitude. He said, am I in the place of God? Paul wrote in Romans 12, 19, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Listen, if you're here this morning, I want to challenge you. I want to, you know, do you want to be free of your anger, of your bitterness? Maybe there's something someone did to you or something and you're just so angry and you're so bitter and you're so, it's just, it's like there's this wound that's always there. If you want to be free from that, let me challenge you. Let God fight your battles. Let him be the judge of those who've harmed you. Let him be the judge. You don't have to be the judge. We're not in the place of God. Let God deal with them. That'll free you of that pain that you, that you're going over in your life. But Joseph, you know, he didn't downplay what they said, what they did. He says, but as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. See, Joseph, he didn't downplay their evil actions, but he knew everything has a purpose. Believe it or not, even bad things. The Bible says God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So Joseph finished well in trusting God with the outcome. He just let God deal with it. Verse 22, So Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's household. And Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, was also brought up on the knees of Joseph. I'm a grandfather. And I tell you what, it's a blessing to raise up our grandkids on our knees, Teresa and I, you know, we literally bouncing them on her. She's got one on her knees right now, but literally bouncing them on your knees, you know, uh, raising up your children. I tell you, your children's children, it's a blessing. 
It's a blessing uh, to be able to see your children's children. But maybe you're here this morning and your children are younger. Maybe, or maybe they're older but they're not married or they don't have children yet, whatever. You don't have any grandchildren. Or maybe you have grandchildren but there's been a break in the relationship for whatever reason and you're prevented because of this issue. You're prevented from being involved in their lives. I've got good news for you. Maybe they're not born yet, or maybe you're being prevented from being around them. But guess what? You can always bring them up on your knees. You can always pray for them. Distance doesn't have to separate you from that. Verse 24. And Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. And they embalmed him, and, was, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. You know, you look at the life of Joseph. He did so many great things, right? I mean, he was forgiving of his brothers. He was a, he was a good steward. Wherever he went, you know, he was a faithful steward. God blessed him in that way. He was an honest person. Uh, you, you look at all these great things, and then he, he was faithful in small things. He was made faithful and great. I mean, he was the prime minister of Egypt. And, and you look at all these accomplishments in Joseph's life, and you think, wow, God must really be happy with, you know, he was a success in so many ways. But you know where he was successful in? There's only one thing that the Bible records as his uh, being a success in Hebrews 11.22. It says, By faith Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. Because that's what matters to God, our faith. It's faith that pleases God. It's faith that impresses him. Like his father Jacob, Joseph finished well in his faith. Here's an interesting little bit of trivia. Both Jacob and Joseph were embalmed, right? And and even now they're finding, you know, they've they've excavated, you know, uh, bodies, you know, mummies basically and stuff. Just think about it. If you could locate their bodies, they'd probably be still intact. Well, anyways, we're finishing up the book of Genesis here. We started, I don't remember how long it's, we've been in Genesis, it's been a while, but we began with God creating man and placing him in a garden of Egypt. And look how the book of Genesis closes with a man dying and being placed in a coffin in Egypt. What a contrast. You know, we look at that and we go, yeah, man, you know, they had it perfect. They had everything, and they blew it, and they sinned. And the, the end of the book, they, they, they're be, Joseph's being placed, a man is being placed in a coffin in Egypt because he died. That's the beginning of the story. But you know what? I've read the last book, in the, and we're going to be doing the book of Revelation, actually, starting in November here. That's not the end of the story. God wins. God wins. And you will, too, if you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation. But I want to challenge each one of us this morning. Are you going to finish well? Maybe you've got a, a lot of years ahead of you. Maybe you don't have as many years ahead of you. Maybe there's more in the, in the rearview mirror than there is ahead of you, you know. Um, but let me ask you this. Are you going to finish well? Put your name in there. You know, I've done funerals before, and, and uh, you know, I, I just did one for my mother-in-law's husband. And... Uh, I don't, didn't know much about his background. I just, we've just, I've known him for about three years or so, maybe a little bit more than that. And uh, 
and I know from talking to him, and, and, and I know a little bit about his history, that it wasn't a very good history. There were some broken relationships, there were some hurts, there were some things that he did, foolish stuff that he did. But he did finish well. He rededicated his life to the Lord. He was bringing my mother-in-law to church. He was, he was, whenever I saw him, he was talking about the Lord. And, and he finished well. But how about you today? Would they say that of you? It's tough as a pastor when I'm doing a funeral for someone that's not a believer. It's like, what, do, what, can, what, what good can I say about him? Especially if I don't know him. It's hard, you know. But I'd love to be able to do one. And I hope none of you die right now. But I hope to be able to do your funerals and be able to say, hey, you finished well. You finished well. So let me challenge you with this last thing. Is there an area in your life that you are struggling to finish well in? Maybe you're struggling in your faith this morning. Or maybe you're, you're struggling with your treasure. You know, you've kind of gotten the focus off. You're, you're, you're building your kingdom here instead of laying up treasures in heaven. Maybe you've got your priorities a little mixed up there. Or maybe you're in a marriage that's like, man, I don't even know what I'm doing in this marriage. I want to get out of this marriage. We, we should have never got married and that we're stuck. Will you finish well in your marriage? Will you finish being submitted to God's will? Will you finish well being submitted to his will? Will you finish well trusting him with the outcome of something you have no control over? Um, let's pray right now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we thank you for the, the lessons in the life of both Jacob and Joseph. And Lord, I pray that each one of us, Lord, that we may finish the race that is set before us. And Lord, we each have different races. And Lord, maybe, maybe we've been blowing it so much and we've gone off course. And we've been in the weeds for, for decades, maybe. Lord, I thank you that by your grace, we can get back onto the track, back into the, the race that you set out for us. And that, Lord, I pray that each one of us may be able to reach the end of our days where, where it will be said of us, we finished well. And that, Lord, the moment that we step into eternity, we will be in your presence and hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, that's our goal this morning. And so I pray for each one of us this morning, Lord. And I thank you for refocusing us, focusing us, on, uh, focusing us on what is important. We love you, Lord, and we give you this time now in Jesus' name. Amen.